Well, good morning. I'm going to get this out of the way and say howdy, y'all. I am a native of Texas. And between Pastor Jeff with his Uper accent coming up here to welcome you and me with what I've been told is a little bit of an accent, you may think, and without being wrong, that maybe you've come to a charismatic church. What I want to assure you is that's not the case. But in keeping with Paul's admonition to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I have made certain that we have native Texans here who, if I slip into a Texanism, will be able to come up and give an interpretation of that tongue. Well, first of all, I want to thank uh, Kim and Carrie for that beautiful duet of Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. You know, I'm not normally one that has a hymn come to mind as I prepare a lesson, but it really seemed like from the very beginning that I was given this particular passage to read time after time, the Lord kept bringing that hymn to my heart. And it really seemed to form, really, I think, the perfect backdrop for the message that I think the Lord would have me deliver this morning. This particular hymn was written by Helen Limmel in 1922. And it was inspired by a poem who was written by an amazing lady that heretofore I'd never heard of. Her name was Lilius Trotter. Lilius was born in 1853 in London, England, and she was a gifted artist. In fact, some of her artwork is is on the slide that you see. She had a potential to have a career in art, and in fact, famous art critics who saw her work were willing to invest in her because they saw a great potential there. But Lilius felt a deep calling to reach the lost for the Lord. And so even while she was in London, She would go out at night to Victoria Station, the streets of London, in the evening to reach and to rescue prostitutes off the streets. Lilius also felt a call to go to the unreached peoples in Algeria, located in North Africa. This would come at great cost because she would have to sacrifice a career in art. Furthermore, no agency would either sponsor her or support her, but undeterred, Lilia surrendered her life, and she went on her own and spent 40 years of fruitful ministry in North Africa in the deserts. In fact, she died serving the Lord in North Africa. While she was there, she wrote a number of poems, but she wrote this poem in particular that included this stanza that inspired Helen Limmel to write her hymn. Turn your soul's full vision to Jesus and look at him and a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from him. And the divine attraction by which God's saints are made, even in this 20th century, will lay hold of you. For he is worthy to have all there is to be had in the heart that he died to win. I think the story of Lilius beautifully parallels that of the story of the Apostle John, whose letter we're going to look at this morning. Like Lilius in the deserts of North Africa, John spent an extended period of exile on the island of Patmos for his faith. And I can't help but believe that while John was alone, exiled there because of his faith, that John learned to turn his eyes upon Jesus. 
John was the younger brother of James, and together with their father Zebedee, they were professional fishermen before the Lord called him to become one of the disciples. John would be in what we would call the inner core of Jesus' disciples, along with Peter and James. A number of events in Scripture that speak of these three being with Jesus at significant events. Uh, three that I have listed here would be the Mount of Transfiguration to see the glorified Lord. They were with Jesus with the raising of the synagogue ruler Jairus, the raising of his dead daughter. And they were with Jesus that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. John is the author of five books in the New Testament, his own gospel, the three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then the book of Revelation. This particular letter was written around A.D. 90. It's believed by this time that John is no longer in exile on Patmos, but now is instead living in Ephesus. It's not addressed to any specific church, much like the Apostle Paul had letters to Romans or Corinthians or Galatians. It was quite likely intended to be read and then circulated among a number of different churches, quite possibly the seven churches that John addressed in the book of Revelation. So with that background uh, in mind, would you stand as we read from 1 John chapter 1, the first four verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You may have a seat. Well, early on in these very first four verses, John clearly states that he has a very specific goal for writing this letter of 1 John. He says in verse 3 that he wanted his readers to have fellowship with him and with God the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, John uses the word for fellowship. The Greek word is koinia. And what this word means in the Greek is to have an intimate spiritual communion within the context of spiritual community. So it's much different than the guys getting together to watch a ball game or the women getting together to catch up on life and see what's going on. It's really much more deep and much more profound. So here in this letter, John is writing about it, and it's actually spoken about in the New Testament some 19 times. Here John is saying that this fellowship that he wants his readers to experience is with us. And that's something that you and I should never take for granted. God has given you and me each other. And that's a special privilege. That is a bond that we should cherish and long and appreciate. But John wanted his readers to know that really what he's talking about goes far deeper. And it's much more profound than even that. John states that indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So what's that mean? You know, it's easy for me to read something and just kind of gloss on and say, 
Okay, that sounds good, but what does it mean? Well, John is going to explain it, but as he begins to talk to his readers and write to them about fellowship with Christ that he longs for them to experience, he needs to address an issue that had impacted the early church. In fact, this was a sin, a false teaching that had infected the early church really for the first three centuries of its existence. He's not going to name it by name, but that false teaching is Gnosticism. I think really the reason he doesn't name it by name is that Satan just repackages the same old lies and sends them out under different names, but at the core, they are the same lies. And so he's going to need to write to his readers and say that in order for them to have this kind of a fellowship, they had to have it with the Jesus as he really is, as he is shown in Scripture. And so this Gnosticism was a philosophy that was inspired by Plato and other Greek philosophers. Now, anybody that knows me, and you know me well, you're going to know that I'm not a deep thinker. Uh, You can plunge the deep thoughts that I've got with a plastic spoon. Nine times out of ten, you'll come up with a dry hole. There's just not much there. So I don't want to go wading off into all the different aspects of Gnosticism because we could spend a lot of time doing that. And so what I want to do is really narrow it down to the two main lies that John is going to be addressing in this particular letter. And so I'll call this Gnosticism for Dummies. So simple, even a Texan can understand it. Well, the first lie that the Gnostics believed was that the body was evil, but that the spirit was good. Now, this lie led to two heresies. The Gnostics, first of all, claimed that Jesus didn't have an actual body. He only had a body that just seemed real. Well, now this has some pretty profound consequences if this were true, because what would happen is this lie would nullify the atoning work of Jesus when he died on the cross, when he took upon himself our sins and he died in our place. You know, the author to the book of Hebrews states in chapter 2, verses 14 to 17, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God, or service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Well, this second heresy that developed out of this thinking that the spirit was good but the body was evil was that this belief led to the belief that they had that sin done in the body wasn't really that big a deal. I mean, if the spirit's good, it doesn't really matter what you're doing in the body because the spirit's really all that counts. And the problem with this is it led to an acceptance of all kinds of sinful behavior in the early church. Now, the second lie that the Gnostics espoused was that there was a special knowledge that was required to become saved, and that they and they alone were the ones that possessed this higher knowledge. 
Now, throughout his letter, John is going to address these lies, and what he's going to do is he's going to teach his readers the real person of Jesus. He's going to teach both Jesus' deity and his, uh, and his uh, humanity, and he's going to employ his eyewitness testimony in doing so. And he's going to stress in the letter, you know, it's not by knowledge that a person is saved. It is the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And unlike the salvation that Gnostics believe was only available to a select few, this salvation is available to all who will put their trust in Jesus. So this morning, I want to do an overview of the first four verses and then look at some practical applications for how you and I can find ultimate fulfillment in our lives as we develop this kind of fellowship with our Lord and Savior Jesus and with our fellow believers. So as we begin verse 1, what I see is John just diving headfirst into the deep end of the pool and he's going to begin asserting truth about the person of Jesus as Scripture reveals him. And he, start, he states by saying, that which was from the beginning. Now this is a very, very strong declaration of the deity of Jesus, particularly because it should remind us, just as it would have reminded Jesus, uh, John's readers of Genesis chapter 1 and the beginning of John's own gospel, John chapter 1, where he states, in the beginning. Well, Genesis 1 teaches us that before creation even began, God pre-existed. And John shows in his gospel in the opening chapter that Jesus was the Word. And he says that in the beginning, the Word was with God and the Word was God. Therefore, Jesus is part of the triune Godhead and Jesus also pre-existed and was God. Now, notice how John begins to address this false teaching of the Gnostics by use of his eyewitness testimony. John said of Jesus here, which we, meaning John and the other apostles, we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, I'm going to confess to you a guilty pleasure that I have. I enjoy watching Law and Order. I'm a junkie. One of the things that I've discovered in watching Law and Order over the years is there is a complete unreliability to eyewitness testimony by multiple witnesses. And that's because you've got all these different people from different vantage points and they're giving their impression of what they saw that happened in a very, very short period of time. So it's unreliable. But John's eyewitness testimony is really quite a different matter, isn't it? He spent the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry really as one of Jesus' most intimate disciples. And so in the vernacular of the day, we might say that John would be called an expert witness. And the first thing that John says is that he had heard Jesus. He had heard Jesus' teaching. As a rabbi to his disciples, Jesus, who was the very Son of God, he had taught John and the disciples And John had heard Jesus teach from the Scriptures. And he had heard Jesus explain the Scriptures. And he had heard many of the parables that Jesus spoke to the crowds as he taught. And he was privy, along with the other disciples, to hear the explanation of these parables. 
Now, this past April, I was privileged to be able to go to the land of Israel with Pastor Scott and several others from the church. And while there, we went to the very Galilean hillside where Jesus gave the Sermon of the Beatitudes to the multitudes. And while we were there, Pastor Scott recited from memory the entire Beatitudes. And as he shared it, as he recited it, he, he shared it with passion. He shared it with emotion. And to be out there and hear him sharing it like that, to hear the birds whistling and all the things that were going on, it was extremely moving. And it reminded me of something that is spoken about in Scripture when Jesus taught. It says in Scripture that when Jesus taught the people, they marveled because he was one who spoke with authority. Not like the scribes and the Pharisees whom they were accustomed to being around. Jesus spoke with authority. And John had heard Jesus. The next thing John in his eyewitness testimony says is this. He saw Jesus with his eyes. Really what John is saying is he lived life with Jesus. Now, I've been privileged over a number of years to go on a number of short-term mission trips. And one of the things that you really discover when you go on a short-term mission trip is you really live life with a person and you really come to know them. And so you can imagine that over the course of three years of earthly ministry, John saw the whole gamut of Jesus. He would have seen Jesus' laughter. He would have seen the sadness. He would have seen the compassion that Jesus had for the lost, the hurting. He would have seen the mercy Jesus extended. He would have seen Jesus physically exhausted, physically tired from all the interaction, all the people pressing with the needs that they had. He would have seen all of the ways in which Jesus related to the people. Next, John says that he had looked upon Jesus. You know, us sitting in this room, can we even begin to fathom the events that John was an eyewitness to? The first event that came to my mind in preparing this is when Jesus, John, and the disciples get in a boat and they're crossing the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is exhausted from ministry and he falls asleep in the boat. And so as the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee, a fierce storm comes. It erupts and the disciples are frantically bailing out water and they're fearful that they're going to be sunk and drowned. Now remember, the majority of these disciples were professional fishermen. This wasn't their first rodeo. They'd been in storms before. But they were really scared. This must have been a humdinger of a storm. And so they awakened Jesus from his sleep and they said, don't you even care? And once awakened, Scripture says, Jesus merely looked and he said, peace, be still. And Scripture says it immediately became calm. And what was the response of the disciples? It said that they were in fearful awe wondering what kind of man was this who could even control the winds. Then there was turning water into wine, his first miracle. There was feeding 5,000 people with just a few loaves and a few fish. There was raising of the dead daughter of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. They saw their Savior being crucified on a cross. And three days later, they see a risen Savior they had looked upon Jesus. And then lastly, John says that he touched Jesus with his hands. Well, over the course of three years, 
I can well imagine a number of events, but you know, as John is writing this, I can't help but believe that maybe he had one particular event in mind. And John speaks about this in John chapter 20, verses 19 to 20. Jesus has arisen, and that evening, it says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, at this particular time, Thomas, one of the disciples, wasn't with the others. And so when the other disciples tell Thomas, we've seen the risen Lord, his response is, I don't believe it. That's why he has the nickname Doubting Thomas. Well, eight days later, the disciples are all gathered back together again, and this time Thomas is with them. And Jesus appears to them, and he invites Thomas to come. Touch my hands, touch my side, see and believe. And you know, I can't help but believe that Jesus had done the very same thing with the disciples the first time that he had appeared to them. Well, continuing on in verse 2, John says that this life was made manifest. Well, I think what he's saying here by life being made manifest was that God the Father has revealed Jesus the Christ, just as Jesus said in his earthly ministry that he had come to manifest God the Father. And so when John says the life was made manifest, he's using the life here as a title for Jesus, much like he did in the first chapter of his own gospel where he uses the title, the word for Jesus. And so here again, what he's stating clearly is that Jesus is actually and physically a real person. And he's saying that he could testify, he could proclaim based on everything that he had heard, that he had seen, and that he had experienced that the eternal life, again a reference to Jesus, who was with the Father, was made manifest to him and the other disciples. And so John is once again confirming both the deity and the humanity of Christ. Well, verse 3 is where John begins to pull all this together, and he lets his readers know that it is through this person, the person that is revealed in Scripture, through this person, the manifested God-man, a koinia fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. It could be a shared fellowship with them as well. Now, what John wanted his readers to understand is that this is far more than salvation. John makes it clear throughout his letter that those to whom he is writing, they are believers. So he's not talking about how to become saved. Pastor and, sem- Pastor and seminary professor Zane C. Hodges wrote in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, it is an interpretive mistake of considerable moment to treat the term fellowship as though it meant little more than to be a Christian. John's readers were already saved, but they needed this letter to enjoy real fellowship with the apostolic circle to which the author, John, belonged. And in the final analysis, that apostolic fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, the Lord Jesus didn't die on the cross merely to keep us from going to hell. That's certainly what He accomplished. But He died that we might have a fellowship with Him. We're not just saved to be saved, we're, we're saved to enjoy Him. 
And throughout this letter, John will use other terms that when we take them all together, they really help us to give a fuller idea, fuller picture of what this fellowship looks like that John desires for them to have. He speaks about being in Him or being in Christ. He speaks about abiding in Christ, which really talks to the whole idea of being obedient and walking with Christ. And in chapter 2, verse 23, he gives this beautiful declaration. He says that to have the Son was to also have the Father. Well, to readers in John's day, this was a radically new concept. You know, the ancient Greek mindset of John's day, they prized the idea of fellowship. I mean, they would have thought, this is great. But they restricted fellowship as something that could only happen in between other human beings. The concept of being able to have a relationship with God and man was just completely revolutionary to them. And you know, apart from Christ and apart from the salvation that he worked, such a fellowship is impossible. But Jesus opened the way. He opened the way to God the Father. He defeated sin and death and Satan at the cross. And as Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, speaking of such fellowship, 19th century theologian G.G. Findlay wrote this, Here we are given without any hesitation a description of the greatest good of the Christian life. Here indeed is the whole object, the ultimate, the goal of all Christian experience and all Christian endeavor. This, beyond any question, is the central message of the Christian gospel and of the Christian faith. And it echoes the Westminster Confession of 1647, which states, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So the question that you and I might ask ourselves is, well, how can I know if I'm having that kind of a fellowship? How can I know if I'm having fellowship with God the Father, with the Lord Jesus Christ, and with my fellow believers here? Well, John gave us eight evidences that you and I can look at. The first, he says in chapter one, is that you and I will walk in the light. Jesus is light, and we will walk in the light. He says also in chapter 1 that you and I will confess known sin. We'll try to keep our accounts short with the Lord. He says in chapters 2, 3, and 5 that we will keep His commandments. We want to walk obediently with the Lord. He says in chapters 2, 3, and 4 that we will love our fellow believers. He says in, uh, in chapter 2 that we will not love the world or the things in the world. And by the world here, he means the world system of which Satan at this present time is prince of this world. We're waiting for our king to come back and reclaim his rightful place on this world. And John says, you and I will not love this world or the things of this world because we're waiting for something better. He says that we will be able to confess the Lord Jesus as the Lord. He says this in chapters two and four. And he says in chapters 2 and 3 that we will practice righteousness. We will do what's right. We have transformed hearts, transformed lives. And then finally he says in chapters 3 and 5 that you and I will not make a practice of sinning. He's very clear that we're not going to be immune from sinning. If you're like me, you've probably already had to confess some today. 
But it will not become a practice. It will not be something that is habitual in our lives. Now, if you're sitting here and you're feeling discouraged, thinking, well, I got a long way to go, my encouragement to you is that none of us in this room are going to achieve perfection in any of these things. You know, some days, if you're like me, my life seems like it's two step forward and one step back. But sadly, there are some days where it's maybe one step forward and two steps back. And you know, apart from the Holy Spirit doing His sanctifying work, His transforming work in you and in me, none of these things would be possible to achieve. They'd all be impossible for us. But I think the writer of the Hebrews admonished his readers in Hebrews chapter 12 to run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And you know, if I think if I could paraphrase what the writer to Hebrews is saying, I think he was telling them to turn your eyes upon Jesus. And you know, the longer that I have run with endurance, the longer I have seen my fellowship with Christ and seen my fellowship with my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, I've seen it deepen. What I've discovered is that truly the things of this earth do grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. Well, verse 4 concludes the passage that we're looking at this morning. And here John is stating again that this desire that he has for his readers was to know and experience this kind of fellowship. And it's his motivation for writing them. And truly, he says that by having such a fellowship, John's joy would be complete. So I want to ask you a question right where you're sitting, in the openness and the honesty of your own heart. You know, you can be like Adam and Eve who hid in the garden, but they weren't really hidden from the Lord. In your own heart, my question for you would be, where are you this morning? Are you experiencing this type of fellowship with our Lord and Savior Jesus? You know, I'm mindful that on any given Sunday here at the Oak, there are going to be some people here who don't even have a relationship with Jesus, much less fellowship. There will be some who are here that have a fellowship, but it's grown cold. Or maybe it's been, distra- it's been severed by unconfessed sin. And then there are those of you who are here that I look up to because you have a deep fellowship with Jesus. And I want to address all three of you that are here this morning, all three groups. First, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus, or, and I know there are many of you that fit this, you have loved ones who have not come to know Jesus. I have a deep burden for you. You can never have the fellowship with Jesus if there's no relationship with Him. You have to become His child. And you become His child by trusting Him to be your Savior. And then once you have that type of relationship, you can develop the fellowship. And during my preparation, my prayer has been that God would be gracious and God would open any heart in this room that's never asked Jesus to be their Savior. I have been where you are. I grew up being taken to church. I wasn't the first to go pile in the car and say, let's go. I was clueless growing up. I didn't even know if I believed that God was real. I want to tell you about a very special lady named Doris Hill. Doris was the mother of Kay. Kay was a fellow band student in the band that I was in in high school. And we lovingly referred to Doris as Mama Hill. And Mama Hill was a frequent chaperone on band trips, and we adored Mama Hill. 
She was the best. And one day we were coming, one night we were coming back, long bus trip from a football game in which we'd played halftime. And Mama Hill was talking to one of my friends, Robert. And Robert was a lot like me, very much a skeptic. And she was talking to Robert. I just happened to be eavesdropping. And she was talking to Robert and she was telling him about the amazing degree of orderliness and complexity that's in our world. That if she had a farmer's almanac there, she could show Robert the exact times of sunrise, of sunset, of high tide, of low tide. And she asked Robert to consider this. How, as we had been taught in school, how is this even possible if everything is just a product of time plus chance? Now, I don't know where Robert is today. Lost track of him. But I can tell you that even though she wasn't speaking to me, she planted that first seed of faith in me. Now, fast forward two to three years later, Palm Sunday of 1971, and I'm a freshman at Texas Tech University. I was going through probably one of the more difficult and painful periods of life. A long-term relationship had ended, and it was a very discouraging time in my life. And a friend invited me to attend First Baptist Church in Lubbock, Texas. And that Sunday, much like today, they had a guest speaker. And that guest speaker was talking about his son and the son's lostness. This son had numerous troubling issues. They were related to drug use, related to depression, all the things that you would expect to be related to chronic drug use. But this dad regularly prayed for his son. And as Pastor Scott might be prone to say, it just so happened that one morning this son came downstairs and as he passed by the closed door of his father's study, he heard his dad in there praying for him and the Lord grabbed his heart that morning. And entering his dad's study, he knelt down beside him and sobbing, he prayed to trust Christ as Savior that very day. Well, much like that man's son, the Lord opened my heart that Sunday as well. You know, looking back, I'm sure that I heard the gospel a number of times. But that Sunday, I heard the gospel. I finally understood that God loved me, how much he loved me, that Jesus had made the way for me to be forgiven, to be accepted. And I trusted Jesus to be my Savior that very day. Well, today I have children and I have grandchildren and I'm burdened for them. I'm burdened for others who don't know the Lord. I have neighbors that don't know Christ. I have coworkers that don't know Christ, others. And I pray regularly for them. And I don't know what brought you here this morning. You may be like I was. You're dragged here and you really don't have a choice about being here. And this is really the last place in the world you want to be. Or maybe you're here and you're searching for answers. But what I'd like you to know is that you are here for a purpose. And that purpose is to know God loved you and God's provided for you. You may not understand this, but you and I, everybody in this room, is under a spiritual assault, the likes of which I could not have even fathomed a few years ago. Jesus speaks, uh, God's Word speaks about it in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. There we read, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Everyone in this room has a common spiritual enemy, and that enemy is Satan. And Satan is introduced early in Scripture in Genesis chapter 3, and there we see him using his weapon of choice, lies. He uses lies to distort the person and the character of God to Adam and Eve. And as a result, Adam and Eve sin. And upon their sinning, sin has entered into our world, and it has affected every single one of us who have ever lived, and certainly every single one of us in this room. In fact, Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, Jesus, speaking about Satan, says this in John's gospel. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's all he knows how to do. And Satan is constantly lying to you. John had to address the lies in his day. Those were the ones that we looked at in this particular letter. And you too, you're being bombarded with lies every single day. You may have heard that, look, all genuine faith is going to get you to heaven. You may have been told, look, God is love. God won't send anybody to hell. You may be thinking, look, at the end of the day, my good works will outweigh my bad works. You may have been told or you may believe, look, God doesn't even exist. He's a myth. You may have heard he could never forgive you. You're beyond hope. Satan is relentless as your enemy. He is pounding home the lies. Pounding, pounding, pounding. You know, as I was preparing this message, I saw an interesting quote. It's this. A lie told once remains a lie. But a lie told a thousand times becomes the truth. You may be surprised to know that this quote is from Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda minister during Adolf Hitler's Nazi regime. A lie told once remains a lie, but a lie told a thousand times becomes the truth. Well, I don't know what kind of lies you're dealing with. They're certainly different than mine. Satan is a master at knowing what he needs to use on any particular individual. But I spoke with Brent Batiste, who's a missionary with Campus Crusades, Athletes in Action, supported Brent for a number of years, and he's been in faithful ministry for 25 years. And I asked Brent, what are the biggest lies or obstacles that he sees that he believes keep students from coming to faith in Christ? Here's what he said. He says, as broken people living in a broken world, people love sin and what it seems to promise. And you know, if you're sitting here and if you are like me and you want to be honest about it, sin can be pleasurable. I mean, we wouldn't sin if it wasn't pleasurable. So it can be pleasurable at first. The promise is it does seem to hold out a lot of promise, but it always comes back to bite. Scripture defines it, in fact, as a fleeting pleasure. So it acknowledges its pleasure, but Scripture says it's fleeting. It's here and it's quickly gone. John wrote about this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, and he says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but is from the world. And by that he means the world system from Satan, who right now is prince of this world. The next lie that Brent sees is that students think that God demands a religious duty or he demands perfection in order to be forgiven, rather than 
God wants us to surrender our hearts, to acknowledge you and I can't do it. You know, it's that whole concept that we have that somehow you or I can earn our way to heaven, whether it's the old Protestant work ethic or I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. It's that idea that somehow you and I can do it. You know, but praise the Lord, none of us here. We are not saved by any works that you can do or that I can do. A favorite verse of mine is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You know, when I'm in heaven... I'm not going to have to look around and watch other people patting themselves on the back and say, you ain't going to believe what I did to get here. We are all saved by an amazing grace of God. Friend says, sadly, there's another obstacle that sometimes keeps people from coming to know Christ, and that is that Christians, whether they were well-meaning or not, they've pushed people away. They've pushed people away by the way they lived, by the, the way they treated others, by maybe some things that they said. And so as a result of that, people are turning away and saying, you know, I, I don't know that I really want to follow the Lord. I, I'm not sure this is really what I want. I also talked to Zach George, who's the unit leader of InterVarsity at the University of Illinois, and he really kind of expanded on this thought that Brent had. Here's what Zach said. He said, one issue is just not trusting Christians. He said, sometimes we Christians isolate ourselves. And so non-Christians don't even really feel like they know us. And he says, if we're in the media, it tends to be in a negative light. And he said, you know, this happens all the time. And the most recent occasion for this happening was the Supreme Court ruling on abortion. And so regardless of what you or I might think about it, evangelical Christians were frequently perceived to just be uncaring of the people around them who were struggling with that decision, who weren't sure how they felt about it. And Zach says that students who he talked to say they frankly struggle with not even being sure they want to be associated with Christianity. Well, I think Jesus dealt with this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, where he wrote this, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And what I think he means is that, look, when you and I, we don't show the love of Christ to others, we don't show compassion, we don't extend mercy, we don't extend forgiveness when it's needed, we are losing our saltiness. And brothers and sisters, when we lose our saltiness, it's almost impossible to restore. Well, then Brent says he also sees students who have a very skewed or really a non-biblical understanding of who God is or what God is like or what his character is like. You know, they may perceive him, you may perceive him, to be up in heaven just ready to drop the hammer on sinners. You know, he just can't wait. Or you may think that God is just indifferent to sin. No big deal. God doesn't care. He's got other things, other fish to fry. Well, what I want to tell you is that both of these are extremes and they are both lies. You know, God has declared in His Word, He is gracious. He is compassionate. He has abundant mercy for all, for all who will turn to Him through His Son, Jesus. 
But I feel like I need to tell you that if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I'm going to solemnly warn you, on the authority of God's Word, there is going to be a day of judgment because God is a holy God. And sinful man cannot be in the presence of holy God. And he's made a way to be forgiven. But there is a day of judgment, and on that day of judgment... Jesus will either be your judge to your eternal regret or he will be your savior to your eternal joy. We read about this day of judgment in Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus has made a way to have your name written in the book of life. One of the other things that Brent says he thinks keep people from coming to Christ is the fact that other believers have not reached out to non-believers and shared life with them, have made an attempt to establish a relationship with them, to clearly share the gospel with them. And Brent says this is really what motivates his ministry on the college campus. You know, he loves to develop these kinds of relationships and frankly, his newsletters are a joy to receive because he's always got a story of someone who's come to know Christ through these relationships. And really, this should be a motivation for you and for me if we have loved ones that don't know Christ. Because again, Jesus speaks about this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. There we read, you are the light of the world and a city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all that are in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know, you and I are called to be the light of the Lord to the people that the Lord brings into our world. Well, Zach George kind of wrapped up things with one other obstacle that he sees, and that's the whole concept of postmodernism. You and I live in what's called a postmodern world. Well, again, I'm not much of a philosopher, so what does that mean? Well, what it means is it's not just enough to prove Christianity with facts. You know, in a postmodern world, people think that what you want to believe in is fine for you. If I want to believe in something over here, that's fine for me. And look, they may not even come close to one another, but we can accept that and we can live in harmony. Well, what that idea espouses is true for opinions. You know, I may prefer vanilla ice cream. You may like chocolate. I may like the Cardinals. You may like the Cubs. But what we need to understand is that truth is objective. Whether you like it or not, truth is objective. Two plus two is always going to equal four. And black is never going to be white. And the Christian faith, unlike any other world religion, the Christian faith is not based on opinion. It is based 
on objective truth that God has revealed in His Word, the Bible. And faith simply is when I come to God and I say, God, I believe you and I am receiving what you're offering. That's why I love the Lord Jesus. And that's why I love his word. You know, as we looked at John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the truth, not a truth. He is the truth. And John writing in his gospel in John 17, 17 says this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So what I think Zach is saying is that, look, people living in a postmodern world, they need to know that Jesus is both true and he's relevant to their lives. And for you and for me, that's difficult in the day we're living in. We're living in a smartphone world. In fact, I had to leave mine down on the pew because I knew it'd probably start buzzing with something happening. So I just left it there. We're bombarded all the time. And we need to help people see that what Jesus is offering is far better than the way they're currently living. And we need them to turn their eyes upon Jesus. So just as John's readers need to get past the lies that the Gnostics had, they had to discover the true person of Jesus to have a relationship, you need to be willing to come to Jesus as he really and truly is. He's fully God, and yet mysteriously and wonderfully fully human. He is our Savior, He is our Lord, and He is going to be our ultimate judge. And once you have that kind of a relationship as Savior, then you can grow and you can develop this fellowship that Jesus has saved you for. He didn't just save you to keep you from going to hell. He saved you to enjoy Him. Jesus wrote, uh, taught about this in John chapter 10, verse 10. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So right where you are, right in your pew, you can silently pray in your heart. You can tell God you're believing what he says. You can admit that you have sinned. You can admit you can't do it on your own. You need a savior. You can believe that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. He took your place on that cross. And if you place your trust in Jesus and what he did, I can assure you, based on the word of God, that you are forever forgiven and you are saved for eternal life. John wrote about that in this very letter we've looked at this morning in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You don't have to sit there and be in doubt. You can know that you have eternal life. So for those of you who are here, I pray you'll do that. Now, for those of you who are in this room this morning and you've let your fellowship with Christ either grow cold through indifference or you've let it lapse due to unconfessed sin, sadly, I can identify with you too. Because there was a time when I failed to turn my eyes upon Jesus, you know, nearly 45 years ago. It was a difficult time that I was going through in my life, and I violated a responsibility that had been entrusted to me, and I sinned in it. And I went through more than a year where I just refused to deal with it. I just stuffed it in the back of the closet, and I would not deal with it. And as a result of that, I compounded that sin in another area where I showed a complete lack of trust in God's love for me, and in his provision for me, and as a result of that, I lost my job. 
And that was a hard time for my family, and that was humiliating, and that was humbling. But by God's grace and by God's mercy, I confessed my sin, and God, by His grace, allowed me to make amends in both of those situations. Now, I'm not going to stand here and lie and tell you, oh, it was an easy piece of cake. If you're where I am, you ought to do it right now. It was hard, one of the hardest things I ever had to do. But I can tell you now, looking back, that God in His perfect timing, He worked all things together for good. And I give thanks to Him for His restoration. And so I would tell you, if this describes you, there is nothing that you have done that God can't bring a restoration. Do not believe the lies of Satan that tell you you're beyond help. It's too late. You've blown it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. You know, in Scripture, King David kept silent about his sin with Bathsheba. And he said in Psalm 32 that during this silence, his bones wasted away and he felt the heavy hand of God upon him. Believe me, I know what that feels like. I went through that and it's painful. But he says in verse 5 of that Psalm, he wrote, he wrote this, he acknowledged his sin. He did not cover his iniquity and he confessed it to the Lord and the Lord forgave the iniquity of his sin. You know, you and I sitting here, we have a precious promise from Scripture. It's really spoken about in this same letter. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would you be willing to humble your heart and do that now if that's something that you need to do? Well, maybe like the church at Ephesus to whom John wrote in Revelation, maybe your love for Christ has simply just become passive. You know, Jesus' message to the church at Ephesus was that they had lost their first love. And today, you may be here going through the motions, but you've lost that first love. You know, maybe you stopped spending really any significant time with the Lord. You're no longer reading His Word, hardly ever praying. You're no longer participating in your ABF. Maybe you're not going to a small group. You may be sitting here and you're wearing a mask and anybody looking at you thinks things are hunky-dory, but you're not fooling God. God knows. The abundant life of which Jesus spoke is being in fellowship with Him. So would you, right now, do as the Lord admonished those Ephesians. What He said was this, remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent, which just means turn around and go back and do what you were doing. Remember where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And then finally, to those of you, you are here and you're my heroes because you have tasted and you have seen that the Lord is good you're enjoying the fellowship that John wanted all of his readers to experience. So my word to you is keep on keeping on. You know, when I get a taste of something I like, and people that know me will tell you it's ice cream and barbecue. And when I get a, a little taste of it, I want more. And so may the exhortation of our Lord be yours this day. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Well, now we want to transition from a time of looking at God's Word to celebrating the Lord's Supper. And so to do that, I've asked Paul if he would come back up and lead us in singing a cappella. Turn your eyes upon Jesus.
Will you close your eyes and bow your heads with me as we sing this together? Turn your eyes upon Jesus.